destruction of the free world? I think Russia's goal is certainly to challenge the international. Um, and I think that if we allow Russian aggression to succeed at any level, like in terms of them being able to seize territory, then that would uh, reward Russian aggression. Uh, it, it would embolden other countries to pursue more aggressive policies. Um, in terms of whether or not uh, like it sort of has anyway, in other words, whether the outcome doesn't matter and like just, just the invasion itself has, um, I think probably no. I mean, if, if I'm a dictator looking at what, what Putin has done, he has secured some short-term like political loyalty from his, his subjects, I guess you'd call them, or his you know, slaves or whatever. But uh, I don't think it, I don't think anyone looking at this from the outside could say it's been successful. He's basically failed on every level, military, political, economic. Um, but I got a lot of people, I got a, peop- a lot of people requesting to come up. So I think a lot of people want to share their thoughts on this. Ollie. So I'll, I'll yield the floor to some other speakers on this. Uh, let me get some people up. I'll let uh, John go ahead. John. Thanks, Joseph. Um, yeah, you were right. Just a very brief one on Taiwan. I mean, yes, if Russia was successful, would that embolden China? Absolutely. Um, Partly because if Russia did succeed, it would be a demonstration of the failure of Western resolve. So in that sense, from a sort of an academic sense, yes. Regardless of what happens in Ukraine, um, China does not currently have the naval capacity it needs um, in order to actually execute that operation uh, and would likely suffer absolutely horrendous losses. So I don't think it brings the timeline forward in that sense because there is still several years worth of preparations that that they have to do and there will be lessons that they'll be drawing from ukraine that will discourage them um i think because the, the taiwanese have a military capability already without further reinforcement um which is far more advanced than than ukraine has yeah, I think a naval invasion is kind of a different, uh, you know, a different situation. Um, but that said, I think we could maybe draw the lesson out more generally to say that like, it would, Russian success in Ukraine, um, like the successful genocide and, and colonial conquest of Ukraine would result in an emboldening of dictatorships and authoritarian rulers everywhere to say, oh, I guess this is like a path, one path that I can uh, pursue personal path. We, we obviously want to oppose that uh, for, for the good of the human race and, and for every. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it there. I've got more people requesting to come up. Uh, maybe Alex, did you have something you want to say about this? Um, yeah, I, I, I would just repeat that, you know, um, had the Russian invasion been successful, that's probably a different story, but um, Russia is clearly on, on the path to epic failure, and uh, if, if anything, China would look at it at, like how not to do things, um, if I may say so. Also, Taiwan is an island. It's uh, very different from... Uh, here you can see very limited uh, naval uh, battle, but uh, Taiwan will be different. So, it... Uh, it's an island. You need massive force. You need massive naval force, and uh, and I also believe Taiwan has quite strong um, air capabilities. So, like, um, yeah, all things are left aside. Uh, 
if anything, uh, China would probably decide to better prepare if if uh, anything was even at work, because uh, a lot of things can go wrong uh, when you are trying to undertake these things. And, uh, and uh, the resolve of the Western world is also key, because uh, I do not know if China would want to be in that type of isolation. They they depend a lot. What they're exporting to the world is uh, like, uh, unlike Russia, who is exporting oil and gas, uh, they are exporting a lot of things. So it will be hard, hard to plan um, anything like that. Maybe they are preparing it, but not quite ready yet. But honestly, I wanted to, uh, I had a comment about uh, topic, uh, oh, about Lithuania. You know, uh, yeah, it, it requires maintenance. Actually, what they can also do is, you know, to change the gauge to European uh, standard. Uh, so it would be very funny how Russians, you know, will bring their railway up to Lithuania on their own gauge, then move to European gauge, then move back to their gauge. That would be quite a... But yeah, that's... Good prank. Uh, ways to, yeah. Oh, I just said it would be a good prank. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Alex. Yes, exactly. But um, yeah, I think uh, I don't think Lithuanians will uh, back down, and I also don't think uh, EU will try to force them because, if anything, they will uh, uh, step up to support Lithuania against you know any potential kind of pressure from uh, currently it's a Schultz. I, I don't even want to say Germany because at this point, like, uh, I, I don't think uh, there are probably different opinions, but again, majority supports Ukraine. And, uh, you know, Russia will have to commit a lot of ships and airplanes uh, to continue supplying uh, Königsberg, which is a good thing to do. Like, anyway... Uh, you can uh, increase costs for Russia to operate. You should do that. So I, I mean, full support. That's very creative. And, and actually, you know, EU. Uh, what I don't understand is like uh, how on earth you can pressure. Uh, basically, what Lithuania did is there is a list of sanctioned goods, right? And they said you cannot do transit of those either, which is kind of fair. And uh, like logical too, because if they are under sanctions, you are not supposing to, you are not supposed to help this. Uh, this is smuggling, uh, essentially, right? You want to sanction these goods. You don't want Russia to get access to these goods. So transit is a very fair game. Uh, it makes totally. I would not even consider it as something that Lithuanians are doing on purpose. It's uh, They wanted to apply the EU rules. Now, EU trying to ban its own rule it doesn't look very right. Uh, actually, it's not, again, it's not EU. It's uh, apparently it's Schultz. So we'll see. But uh, definitely repairing railways is, is a good way to essentially show that uh, pressure is usually... Thank you, Alex. Uh, Gurney, uh, I saw you had your hand up before. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, we've, we've moved on, so I'm good. Okay, no worries. Uh, so actually, I saw uh, Maddie uh, Kafarov is in the audience. Uh, Maddie, we've had some questions about uh, the recent goings-on in Uzbekistan, 
and I did my best to answer it, but if you maybe had any insight into how it might affect the political situation in Russia or, uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, we would appreciate you coming up and uh, letting us know. Hey, Maddie, good to have you here. Hi, hi Joseph. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, so, yeah, uh, so we, we have seen some uh, recent uh, videos from Uzbekistan. Uh, the political situation there looks pretty, pretty serious, uh, but... You know, as you know, the space is uh, very focused on Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I was wondering if you could maybe uh, deliver some some thoughts on it uh, in terms of its uh, implications for for Russia specifically, and uh, you know, maybe if if it has any bearing on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Matty. Sure. So something to consider, uh, something is that is very important is the relationship between Uzbekistan and Russia. They've been trying to distance themselves from Russia way before. Uh, the Crimea happened, and they've been on the path on that path for quite a while. They're, they left CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, quite a while ago. Uh, they they did not join the uh, Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, it's a, it's a soft power tool. Uh, the Russians tout it as a as an equivalent to the EU in the Eurasian space, but in reality, it's nothing more than another uh, colonial tool, imperial tool that the Russians are using to pressure their neighbors economically. And considering all of that, Uzbekistan um, is not one of those countries that Moscow likes exactly. In fact, they've been attacking them through their propaganda channels quite frequently. Um, for one of the examples to consider would be the recent protests in Kazakhstan back in January, this past January, and during one of the CSTO meetings uh, for a mission debrief among the heads of state, Lukashenko was actively attacking Uzbekistan, saying, look at Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and learn your lessons, you might be next. It was, it was an overt threat. Uh, considering all of that, I wouldn't be surprised that the Russians uh, would, could be actively seeking to de- destabilize the situation in Central Asia. Um, and the move by Mirzayev, the head of uh, the Uzbek state, uh, I would argue made a rational step to eliminate Karakal Pakistan's, which is an autonomy within, within Uzbekistan, right to secede, uh, because they had a, a, a potential Donbass region. Uh, Uzbek Donbass. Uh, I've seen some people making arguments about ethnic divides and so on and so forth. And being a, an ethnic Kazakh myself, I can tell you that uh, Karakopaks are almost like Kazakhs. They're, they have pretty much an identical language. And I've seen some far right leaning people in Kazakhstan saying we should we should really help them because they're practically Kazakhs and the region was taken away from Kazakhstan by Stalin in 1936. That's just hot hogwash and it's just insane talk. Um, the only country that would win uh, out of this mess is ultimately Russia. So uh, considering all of that, uh, it was somewhat of a rational step, but obviously the local population in Karakal, Pakistan didn't take it so lightly. Um, ultimately, the situation would have changed significantly uh, if their right to see was taken away. But having that right was nice. Uh, we, I think I think many people have already seen how brutally the protests were crushed, which is not that surprising, shocking, but not surprising, um, because we already had some precedents like that in Uzbekistan uh, quite a while ago uh, under a different president, Islam Karimov, uh, in Andijan, uh, a completely different province in, um, in Uzbekistan, the eastern part of Uzbekistan. The situation was somewhat similar where people rose up when they were not happy with the 
with the with the economic situation in their region, and they were promptly crushed, pretty much in a similar manner. Uh, large number of casualties. Uh, army units were pulled in. Mil- uh, mil- uh, local police forces were pulled in, and they just shot unarmed protesters. So here we've also seen that situation is kind of calming down right now. I'm somewhat surprised that Mirzayu decided to roll back uh, some, not all, but some uh, constitutional reforms, especially those that are related to the to the autonomy, Karakalpakistan's right to secede. Um, but ultimately, it's uh, he's he's a shrewd politician, so he'll probably he's a dictator, but he's a shrewd politician, so ultimately he probably knows what he's doing. Uh, I've seen some provocations out there where, especially in English-speaking Twitter, saying Kazakh troops are moving to the border, and that is just not true. <laughs> uh, I I have a way to check it for for Kazakhstan. Yes, there are troops moving, but those are border guards. They are not designed to do any offensive operations. They're just there to make sure that uh, any armed protesters don't actually seep through the border and get into Kazakhstan. Nobody from Kazakhstan is going to get involved in that conflict. It's it's their, it's their mess and they, 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 they should figure it out themselves. Uh, but in terms of the entire, uh, how it reflects on the, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, at the end of the day, I don't think it's going to have any impact. Uh, because ultimately Uzbekistan wasn't helping Russia in the first place in, in no way, shape, or form. Uh, but it, if the uh, if the protests do spill over into the neighboring countries, which I think is highly unlikely, especially Kazakhstan, uh, it could potentially be useful to the Russians because uh, we've seen so far they really like destabilizing their neighboring countries. The, and by neighboring countries, I mean those that share a common border with them. So those are just my two cents. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I think that's a really good analysis, and that's something to keep in mind about Uzbekistan is that they sort of they went pretty hard to the toward the west, right? Like they got rid of the Cyrillic alphabet, they switched to the Latin alphabet. Uh, you know, I knew a few Uzbek Tajiks, uh, but uh, it seemed like Uzbekistan might you, we might say it was the country that most went towards towards the west at, at the end of the Cold War uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Would you say that's true or? or... Uh, maybe not. So. Uh, yes and no, um, because they have a very different culture uh, from the West. Uh, I wouldn't say they they had a, made a move towards the West. I would just say they made a move uh, to distance themselves from their former colonial overlords from Russia, and that's but just by virtue of that they moved closer to the West. Um, it's a double landlocked country. It's the largest double landlocked country, so that puts them in a very difficult spot where they have to negotiate multiple trade agreements, uh, not just with, for example, if you want to, they want to get into Europe, they have to negotiate with Kazakhstan, and then they have to negotiate with Russia. And it's the same applies to China. If they want to get to China, they need to negotiate either with Kyrgyzstan or uh, Kazakhstan, and. The entire the the entire Central Asian region is kind of a bit of a mess because the borders there. Uh, if we take away Kazakhstan, the borders between Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan were not well defined. the The Russians, the Soviet Russians, really messed it up, and I think that was done by design. We so that's oh, why yeah. we see yeah. So that's why we see a lot of exclaves and enclaves, contested territories. The borders there between Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan are finalized so there will be no way for example for turkmenistan or Kazakhstan to lay any legal claim there that's why i think it's a purely internal matter 
Uh, something I didn't add in terms of the forecast, I've seen some people saying that uh, there could be potentially large changes in the country, to which I say, no, there's not going to be any change in the country. Um, something to consider is the population of Karakal, Pakistan is just over 1.8 million, and it's a country of 36 million. It's uh, Yeah, when you look at the map, you'll see that it occupies a very large chunk of Uzbekistan, but it's mostly desert. It's it's not not, not really habitable. Uh, so when you have a small region, population-wise, that is dry, uh, that could be a driving force for a change. Ultimately, nothing is going to change. Uh, when uh, when you look for changes in, a, in countries like the ones in Central Asia, the biggest cities are the ones that you should be concerned with. Uh, so for Uzbekistan, that would be primarily Tashkent to a smaller extent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah, I think Maddie, that was uh, some great analysis. I think maybe the takeaways there are going to be that uh, chaos in Central Asia kind of benefits Russia. Uh, they, they're able to sort of take advantage of that chaos. This uh, situation in Uzbekistan is pretty localized, and it's not going to have any real um, implications for uh, the situation in terms of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Would you say that's a good like uh, summary? Exactly. Great. Okay, so uh, maybe we'll take uh, any questions people have. Uh, Bloke, I saw you had your hand up, but uh, if anyone wants to come up and raise your hand and ask a question about the situation in Central Asia, uh, we would appreciate it. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, to you, Bloke. Yeah, thank you, Maddie. Um, yeah, sadly, I'm really ignorant about uh, Uzbekistan, so I was wondering if you could help me with a, a brief primer on what is just like basic 101 um you know the government in charge um why the protests are taking place why there was such a, a what apparently appears to be a violent crackdown um and what russia is trying to do within uzbekistan like are these little green men or is it a, 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 a genuine a political uprising. I, I, I just, I'm, I, I just need some 101 on Uzbekistan, if you could, please, Matty. Sure, uh, I'll be very brief. The region has a very long history. It's, uh, it's very ancient. Um, Joseph mentioned uh, two cities, for example, Samarkand and Bukhara. And those cities are were established in the. Uh, in the Dark Ages. Uh, that region was historically very rich because it occupied uh, an important portion of the Silk Road. Uh, that's where multiple cultures uh, interacted with each other, uh, where Asia met the Middle East and uh, partially Europe as well. So there's been a lot of Persian influence, there's been a lot of Turkic influence, and there's been a lot of, um, I wouldn't say it's Mongol, but some Mongol influence as well in, in the in the past. Um, unfortunately, as the as the years progress, so I'm kind of moving out of the Middle Ages into the uh, uh, into the 16th, 17th century. Uh, it uh, technologically uh, was left behind uh, simply because of the age of sail. Uh, the Silk Road was not that important anymore. And as the as the region started to uh, fall back technologically and uh, fell down into a, a period of internal squabbles. The Russians took advantage of that situation, and gradually they they made their presence even bigger. And by saying uh, their presence, I mean, of course, conquest, because nobody welcomed them <laughs> with open arms. Um, they were uh, when when it came to Uzbekistan, they, they didn't really 
show up immediately because they had to go through uh, the Kazakh Khanate and it took them more than 100 years to pass through uh, modern-day Kazakhstan. Uh, but when they showed up in what is now modern Uzbekistan, it didn't, t- didn't take them too long. Um, of course, there were multiple genocides. Uh, many cities were uh, practically destroyed. For example, Bukhara uh, had to go through a significant reconstruction. And uh, the the region was split up um, initially into uh, various um, uh, khanates, uh, which, uh, principle, well, for for the Western audience to easily understand is pretty, pretty much like a principality. And one by one, they fell to the uh, Russian imperial invasion. Um, those were th- those principalities primarily centered around specific cities. For example, we've got Kharizm, uh, we've got Bukhara, we've got Samarkand, and uh, one by one, they get absorbed. The, the region um, at large uh, was then ag- aggregated into a large super region called Turkestan, or uh, as a as a province, a colonial province within the Russian Empire. When the Russian Empire fell, there were multiple uh, national liberation movements in Central Asia, uh, including the one in Uzbekistan. They tried to break away. Um, that didn't go so well. The Reds showed up and uh, they proceeded to slaughter people. If you look up Siege of Bukhara, I think think I, I i won't tell you the year exact but it, it was either 21 or 22 1921 or 2022 uh they, they basmachi rebellion yeah Basma, uh, basmachi rebellion yeah uh the yeah that's another topic uh altogether because the Soviets portrayed them as bandits and uh, terrorists and so on and so forth when in reality those were people who fought for their independence and sovereignty but uh if you look into in the russian history books uh, Basmachi is pretty much a synonym for a, a roving band, when in reality, that is absolutely not the case. Um, yeah, so Bukhara took the brunt of the uh, uh, the communist aggression. It was thoroughly suck- sacked again, um, and the, the region was finally incorporated in the Soviet Empire. Uh, under the Soviet rule, the, uh, the entire Central Asian region again started to get partitioned. Um, uh, Kazakhstan was finally renamed from the false label of Kyrgyz. It, it was renamed to uh, Kazakh Autonomous Republic. A, a few sections of the country were taken away, including Edinburgh, which is part of Russia now. And another section in the south was taken away and given to Uzbekistan. And uh, the reason I'm mentioning because this is important, that was Karakalpakstan. Um, that's why it's ethnically different, and that's why it was given an autonomy within Uzbekistan. Um, Uzbekistan has a pretty interesting mix. That's why I went back into history, because it's not purely Turkic. Um, there's a lot of Persian influence. Um, when people say Tajiks, um, I, I, I'm more inclined to call them Persians. Uh, I don't know if Joseph Me would agree. Too. But yeah, because I don't want to call a, a nation artificial, but... That's what something that popped up during the Soviet times. Because if you look through history, Tajiks were not really a thing. Everyone in Central Asia just called them Persian. They're just Persians. Uh, it's something that the uh, the Soviet Union decided to create to um, to use that mantra of divide and rule. And they decided to differentiate the, the Tajiks from uh, other Persians, um, make them a distinct um, entity and an entire different nation. 
Um, that, uh, surprisingly, Tajikistan was not even a nation of its own before the Soviets decided to uh, rip it away from Uzbekistan. So Uzbekistan did lose some, some, some regions as well. And that is why I mentioned the borders in Central Asia are really funny because they're not funny at all. They're full of conflict. Um, and if you look into the eastern parts of Uzbekistan, you'll see that uh, the border with Tajikistan geographically makes no sense. There's a big valley uh, that, uh, that is located in the eastern part of Uzbekistan, but it is split between Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. And for Tajikistan to get into that valley, they need to pass them through a massive mountain range. And that's not how borders are naturally set up. That's an unnatural border. Um, so, and if you look at by region by region, you'll see that uh, many regions in Uzbekistan, for historical reasons, tend to have a predominant uh, ethnic group. But uh, when people try to spin a story, those ethnic groups are going to fight each other, and they're going to—it's going to—the country's going to go into a civil war. That's—I think—that's highly unlikely. It's, it's not going to happen because it's not—it's not a collection of people that that are so different that they're going to—they're going to fight each other. Those people interact and live with each other for centuries, so they get along with uh, with each other just fine. It is the governments in those regions that might take it could take advantage of the situation. Uh, for example, I mentioned the enclaves and exclaves. Uh, frequently, whenever there's a skirmish happens between the two countries, it's usually the Russians who are pushing uh, for, a sp for specific action to be taken. For example, we've seen uh, clashes, just some minor skirmishes between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And I have a strong feeling that Tajikistan was uh, thoroughly suggested by the Russian side to take action because the the, uh, the local population in Tajikistan, to be honest, is not that aggressive. They're, they've lived with uh, Kyrgyz people for a long time. They get along uh, just fine. They can, they can be some minor, squabble, minor squabbles on a, on a day-to-day -day life, but nothing of the sort uh, that could lead to a national, huge national conflict. So yes, ultimately, I think it is Russia that is, um, that is sowing discontent and and that's why I mentioned in the, in the very beginning that Mirza Yoyev, uh potentially was trying to make a rational step to prevent any any kind of escalation or provocation from the Russian side by taking away the Karakal Pakistan's legal right to secede. Hopefully that answers. Th that was that was amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That that really helped. I will say, as uh, s someone who studied Central Asia, I really feel for Maddie because that's kind of like that. That's basically our job. Um, is like you have to just explain the entire history of Central Asia to like your your audience, uh, you know, in five minutes because like to start your lecture, like you have to be like, okay, so let's go back to the Silk Road, everybody. So it's uh, he, he did a, Maddie did a great job uh, making a, as brief a history as you can uh, over you know two thousand years. But uh, so Gurney had a few questions for you, Maddie. So uh, Gurney, go ahead. Hi, thanks, Maddie, for being here. Um, quick questions, just so so for people that are just tuning in right now, um, that was an excellent summation. Um, of of that area and that region, um, and the and the reason we're discussing this is is because if they're waking up to the news of um, reading reading news reports of potential um, unrest in that region, um, so so that's the the contextual basis. But my question, Maddie, to you is: so talking about um, uh, Russian Russian interests uh, to destabilize any any region, destabilize any 
um, of their neighbors. Uh, what does that? How does that? How does that look like in terms of this specific um, this specific area? So, uh, does that look like Russian information operations on 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 both ends of this, both for the um, the government in power and also for the autonomous region? Could you just talk? Could you just explain maybe here um, and enlighten me on, um, on on what you might be seeing or not seeing that might be fomenting some of this um, this this internal dispute? Sure. So. Generally, the Russians really like using their uh, local ethnic Russian populations or their propaganda channels, Russian-speaking propaganda channels. Unfortunately, well, fortunately for Uzbekistan, those two options for them are not viable in Uzbekistan um, because there's not a lot of ethnic Russians living in Uzbekistan right now, and most of the country is not watching Russian state TV anymore. Um, the So the only option that they have is to exploit ethnic differences with, within the country itself. Um, I don't think what's happening right now was 100% motivated or incited by Russia, um, but uh, the Uzbek uh, government is kind of on fault, at fault themselves as well. Uh, they preemptively tried to uh, resolve the situation in case of a Russian provocation, and they kind of uh, created an ideal storm for themselves and that in Karakalpakstan. So I wouldn't be surprised that some of the local activists, I tried to look look up if there's uh, any leadership among those who are protesting. It seems to be somewhat disorganized. So I, I tend to believe that it's it's not financed by the Russians. Uh, but again, it's, it's too early to tell. We have to just wait and see. Uh, but to say that the Russians are 100% at fault in these protests and this, and this uh, uh, mass, uh, potentially mass murder, uh, would not be exactly correct. So whatever the Uzbek government is doing right now, that's uh, in terms of murder, that's primarily their own fault. Um, I'm not trying to whitewash the Russians. I'm, I'm still saying that um, the only reason it's happening because Mirzayev preemptively tried to eliminate a weakness that the Russians could potentially exploit. Uh, because uh, for the past few years, we've seen an aggressively, an increasingly aggressive rhetoric from the, from the Russians uh, targeting Uzbekistan. Um, another potential mechanism that the Russians could exploit, and I'm actually seeing it right now, they're trying to uh, break the relationship between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. I've seen some bloggers, Russian bloggers, saying Karakal Pakistan was taken away from Uzbekistan and uh, from Kazakhstan, given to Uzbekistan. And uh, while it's true, there's no point of bringing it up right now. It's it's uh, it's completely. Uh, it's a vacuous argument. It's not legally. It's not part of Kazakhstan. We have nothing to do with it. And by the way, I mean Kazakhstan. I'm, I'm from Kazakhstan, by the way, in case you know, people. And um, and another uh, some English-speaking tweets I've seen saying that the Kazakhs are moving troops there. It's just that's just another level of provocation because if Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan start start clashing, guess what? There's only one country who's going to win, and that would be Russia. Kazakhstan is not going to win. Uzbekistan is not going to. Uh, we've had some uh, border border conflicts in the past, uh, and by conflicts I mean just disputed territories, but we've managed to negotiate them without. Uh, <laughs> Big, uh, big shootouts. There were some minor skirmishes in the nineties, uh, but yeah, that's threats between the leaders, and you know it goes back and forth. Yeah, they threaten to bulldoze historic monuments uh, the, from other, uh, you know, from their history and stuff. It's okay. Sorry, Matty, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but at the end of the day, you don't see armies moving in. So that is when people end up just negotiating and, and signing treaties. Ultimately, then then 
it, all ends well what ends well right so if, if not a lot of people if we don't see large-scale murder it's uh, it's good and and Maddie, thank you. That's that's wonderfully enlightening. If if I may ask, if you if you were to sort of make a prescription, sort of, um, you know, you're, we're discussing this sort of to preempt or or add context to it, so that um, you know, sort of to prevent um, um, some irrationalities from arising, you know, to, to prevent some larger actions from occurring. Would would you prescribe that the that um, media information on the Kazakh side would be more important, more enlightening uh, to adjust to this as opposed to the um, to the <clears throat> to the Uzbek side? Or how would you describe in terms of, you know, getting information out there uh, so that this does not become, you know, something that's either destabilizing the Kazakhstan, uh, you know, whether it's sucked into it or something that the Uzbeks can handle, even if they have, you know, mismanagement on, on their end? Um, what, what, what would you suggest um, as sort of proactive to the, the news this morning? Generally, I would say don't follow official uh, media because media space is heavily controlled by 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 Kazakhstan and uh, within Kazakhstan and by Uzbekistan within Uzbekistan. Um, it's best to uh, kind of interact with the local uh, independent uh, journalists when it comes to covering the situation in Uzbekistan. Definitely look into Uzbekistan a lot more than anywhere else. Uh, because they they will be the best sources uh, on covering what is actually happening within the country, but when when it comes to troop movements from for example from Kazakhstan, uh, do check official official sources in Kazakhstan, because they're not mentioning anything of the sort. They could be lying, but uh, if you check some of the other uh, unofficial sources like uh, opposition activists, they're not saying much either. So I tend to believe that that. That there are no no actual big troop movements. There are there's an increase in border guards. That is true, but again, those are not offensive troops. They're just there to make sure that nothing spills over. Gotcha. Thank you. So the the best thing they can do is to is to stay informed as as opposed to you know anybody having inflamed actions uh, you know on on this autonomous region. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's best not to make any draw any early conclusions um, because uh, it's easy to kind of label a situation something what is not. Um, it's best to at least that's my approach. It's best to wait and see what happens, and then uh, make conclusions. Thank you. That was my question. This was this is a, a wonderfully informing discussion. Thank you, Gurney and Maddie. Uh, we have a question from Ollie. Ollie, go ahead. No, jo- jo- Joseph, I, I wanted to get off for some time and I'll be joining another time. So if you could take me off. Oh, absolutely, and... Ollie. Thank you very much. Uh, have a great day, all right? You too, you too. Have a great day. When would yeah, you guys be you so that I still come and join? Like when, till when, what time? Uh, uh, when should you join next, you're asking? Yeah. Um, I mean, I when... Say... Normally, it's... You guys switch, right? Because it, it's a different set of people that will be here, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we run mm. 24 hours a day. Uh, but yeah, it's, I don't know. I, if you're asking when I work, I work like uh, previous eight hours thereabouts. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll try. Actually, Ali, we, we're sincerely, we're going to try to organize some kind of panel on uh, Russian activities in Africa because we think it's maybe a, a blind spot we've had. And uh, we're going to try to see if we can find some scholars and some, some people. So we're going to get in touch with you. And uh, uh, so, sure. yeah. If you're, I, think I could add plans, some my pro- yeah, I'll add some of my political science and history professors from school. 
Yeah, definitely. And we, we really appreciate it. So uh, we'll see you later, Ollie. And uh, yeah, have a great day. And uh, thanks for stopping by and uh, talking to us. We appreciate it. Okay. God bless you. Uh, okay, so we're at, we are still taking questions from uh, Maddie. Uh, Maddie is a, a student at the uh, London School of Economics. Is that right, Maddie? London Business School. Sorry, London Business School. Uh, and uh, he's from Kazakhstan. Uh, he's got a lot of great analysis of uh, Central Asia, talking mainly about the situation in Uzbekistan. But uh, Maddie also has uh, great Russian skills. Uh, he posts a lot about uh, analyzing kind of Russian media and sort of colonialism in Russian media. So I was wondering, uh, uh, Maddie, if you had any observations from, uh, I guess, Russian media in the last uh, maybe two weeks since we've heard from you? Nothing really is changing. They still... They still keep threatening people uh, the world with nuclear weapons. It's kind of a uh, normal talk for them. And that is why that meme of boo get better material is becoming relevant uh, every day. Um, in terms of uh, one interesting development that I did see in the past uh, 24 hours is that it seems like the Russian economy might go on, on the war footing. Uh, the, the Russian state Duma might implement some changes in the legislation that would uh, turn the Russian economy into a command economy. Uh, if it were not centralized, heavily centralized before, it's probably going to get more centralized now after the legislation gets passed. Uh, but otherwise, there are no significant changes in the Russian media. Um, I do follow some far-right channels, Telegram channels for the uh, on the Russian side kind of, to kind of gauge uh, what is happening with them. And one interesting thing that I, thing that I do notice is that the Russian imperial movement if you know, people are not aware, it's a it's a terrorist organization, far right organization, as recognized by the United States and Canada. They've declared partial mobilization twice in the past two weeks, which suggests that they're running low on troops. Uh, officially, uh, well, um, some the official estimates from the United States is that the Russian imperial movement has about uh, yeah. uh, several thousand uh, people in their membership. And not all of them are probably combat ready. So I would assume it's at most two or 3,000 that, that are ready to join combat. So it's not a massive uh, organization, but it kind of gauges, provide a, provides a good insight into what is actually happening uh, when it comes to uh, the Russia's capability to field manpower. And it seems that they're running short because they declare recruitment. Uh, they they've opened up their partisan training camp again in St. Petersburg, and uh, yeah, they're actively recruiting. Uh, okay, so that's a, a definitely a good information. Uh, we don't get a lot of uh, you know really deep information like that on Russian media. Uh, so, I mean, you're you're an economist, Mandy. Do you think that Russia could sort of uh, adopt a war footing economy? Is that possible for them in terms of like you know successfully transitioning to a command economy at this point? To be fair. Uh, before this legislation change, it was pretty much a command economy as it as it, as it was, because most of the uh, most of the large enterprises within Russia belong to a very limited number of people that are heavily associated or have close connections with the government. Um, there have been multiple suggestions that those uh, semi-state or quasi-state enterprises got orders from the Kremlin not to fire people. That's why we see those impressive numbers of low unemployment of three point nine percent. And whenever people cite uh, 17% inflation rate in Russia or a decrease in their industrial production, which fell down, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was 15 or 20%. Uh, those numbers are coming from Rostat. That's a Russian, a Russian state statistics, statistics agency. And historically, um, not just in contemporary Russia, but historically within the USSR, it was, there was a practice of 
uh, faking data. So I don't really trust those numbers entirely. I think the situation could be much worse, but uh, this, I still believe that the sanction on, sanctions are not fact working, working as fast as people had expected them to. Um, it's, a, it's like a slow moving train. It's gonna get there, but not as fast as people want it to, to go. Uh, I think the most critical uh, part of the sanctions that, that are coming from the West are related to uh, the tech stuff. So I'm really, really hoping that uh, Germany and France are not going to be violating the sanctions that uh, that are being imposed by the collective West, because we've seen them doing that in 2014 and 2015, fortunately, especially when it comes to um, not just uh, dual purpose uh, components, but also to outright military military components. We've seen we've seen multiple evidences, pieces of evidence that the Russian fighting vehicles have thermal sites um, that were produced by France. We've seen instances where uh, laser pointers or laser de designators that are used in conjunction with laser guided artillery, artillery shells are were of the French origin that were used on the Russian side. So that is somewhat somewhat of a concern for me. Uh, overall, their economy is only going to get worse. Their unemployment rate is going to go up. Uh, I've seen some people expecting that the Russians are going to starve. I don't believe that. I think they have a sufficient agricultural sector that the country is not going to starve. Uh, but at the same time, everything uh, that is related to their, to their economy uh, and related to the production and the consumer sector is probably going to suffer heavily. We've seen that their um, uh, vehicle production, and by vehicles, I mean the, the civilian vehicles, uh, those went down by more than ninety-five percent, uh, which right. is a you're not you're not going to starve is the good news, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the, that's the only piece of good news that I've got for the Russians. But when it comes to employment, uh, they're probably going to get fired pretty soon if they're not working for the military-industrial complex. Uh, they still have sufficient level of technologies to produce dumb artillery shells like HE shells. They still can produce those nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies style uh, guns. So that is concerning. But all of that is using Western machinery. So hopefully uh, that machinery uh, is going to run out of, out of its uh, useful life sooner rather than later. And all of that depends on uh, whether the, 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 the likes of Germany and France are going to be supplying them or not. Hopefully not, because those will be in direct violations of sanctions. Uh, when it comes to uh, making money from their oil and gas um, exports, we've seen that they made about a billion dollars a day by selling uh, carbon, uh, hydrocarbons uh, for the first 100 days of the war, uh, which is unfortunate. I understand why Germany is uh, so stubborn and, and uh, refuses to give up their natural gas supplies uh, because they simply cannot just make a switch uh, fast enough. Uh, the, the logistical chain within Europe uh, for, and I, and I think multiple people are saying it, but, but I'm probably repeating that, the same thing, but the logistical chain, the ports to accept uh, liquid, liquids, uh, liquid, liquefied gas, uh, the capacities are simply not there in Europe. But when it comes to oil, I still don't understand why a total uh, substitution for Russian oil is not possible. It is definitely possible because that oil is primarily uh, taken by tankers and there's sufficient capacity in the local ports to accept uh, said oil through tankers, which could be coming from the Middle East, which could be coming from South America which could be coming from the United States, um, and so on and so forth. So, uh, but ultimately, even if the Russians are making a billion dollars a day um, in uh, hydrocarbons, 
they can't really spend this money. I hope they can't spend it, this money in the West anyway. So, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the Russian ruble because the Russian ruble, yeah. <laughs> the, the exchange rate that you're seeing right now of it against the dollar, it's, uh, it's partially... Yeah, what's, partially the, what's the ruble really going for? It's kind of hard to say, but uh, uh, I've seen some uh, rumors and some listings on the black, uh, not black market, but listings on 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 kind of a, a third party websites where they try to sell uh, collector items, so so to speak, like numismatic items, uh, hundred dollar bills, two hundred dollar bills, uh, fifty dollar bills, sorry, hundred that go for at a rate of between one hundred fifty to two hundred rubles per dollar. So that is definitely way off from the official exchange rate. The official exchange rate is somewhat artificial. There's, there are no free markets that would allow the ruble to actually properly float. And at the same time, uh, the Russians are uh, experiencing a, a really good positive uh, trade balance. And it's not because the Russians are uh, so good at trading, simply because their imports crashed. People stopped selling them stuff. So that is good. Uh, at the same time, uh, given that their uh, exports of hydrocarbons did not go down that that much in terms of volume, um, the and simply by the virtue of uh, skyrocketing oil prices, uh, when you multiply those uh, prices per unit by by the volume that they're selling, they're they're making more money. So yeah, <laughs> so there 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 are two forces. There are macro forces at, at hand, but those macro forces are not getting fully applied to the situation because the ruble is not really a uh, floating currency anymore at the same time. Yeah, it's definitely so, a, an unprecedented economic situation in terms of like they're piling up money, but they have nowhere to some stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you've given a very thorough uh, answer for uh, the state of the Russian economy. I'm going to take it to uh, Gurney real quick. Uh, Gurney, I think you had something to say about all, all this. So go ahead, Gurney. Hey, Maddie, thank you. Um, quick question here. Uh, I don't know if the if the if this is fact or not. Um, I was listening to that awful discussion with uh, there was the um, uh, Carl Niehaus and the um, the Russian ambassador uh, the other day. And in that, uh, again, unsure if it's true because it came from the Russian ambassador to South Africa. Um, and it was a very uh, staged theatrical discussion. Um, so so much, much left to be considered from that discussion but the the, the assumption in there was uh, he had mentioned there was <clears throat> a special pairing in the the Moscow economy or the Moscow markets um, I'm not sure the specifics but he mentioned that there was going to be a specific ruble um, to South African um, currency pairing or, or market currency pairing to avoid transactions occurring in USD I'm assuming as a way to to um, sort of subvert the sanctions uh, and then there was a statement made by him quickly after that uh, where they were looking to uh, sort of incentivize brick type countries with sort of uh, a brick type uh, intercurrency or something, uh, essentially. But I wonder if you could comment on that from the, your economics background. Uh, it may be factually untrue, it may be impossible, but if you could just speak to what that that currency pairing would be or what they're trying to do with that, what the Russians are trying to do with that, um, and why they're, you know, they're using, they're trying to find support in South Africa to, to ostensibly um, gain support in other BRIC countries for, you know, some sort of alternate currency or alternate currency pairs to avoid sanctions. Could, could you speak to that at all? Uh, sure. So first off, it's something that is important to note are secondary sanctions. 
Um, and the reason I'm bringing them up because the United States is actively tracking down uh, most, uh, pretty much every single country that interacts with Russia and warns them of the dangers of helping Russia to circumvent the sanctions that are imposed upon them. And the reason I'm mentioning it, because Kazakhstan already got a stern warning from State Secretary Blinken. So <laughs> that is why Kazakhstan is actively uh, claiming that uh, uh, the country is not going to help the Russians. In terms of politics, I don't know South Africa that well, but I can speak to their economy. I know that the South African economy and the G20 group uh, has been doing very poorly. It's the worst performing country in the G20 group. Their industrial production plummeted. Um, they have not been, their economy hasn't been performing well for the past couple of years. Um, I think it's partially caused by COVID. It's partially caused by the local intricacies that I'm not fully comprehending. So I don't want to go too deep into that. Uh, but the Russians historically already tried many times to create a dollar free uh, trade space. They tried to do it with Iran. They tried to do it with China and all of those attempts in the past have failed so i don't see why a relationship with south africa would help them it's uh it's more of a political move that uh than anything of a, a it's not a serious economic solution to the situation because south africa is not a great economy Ah, oh, Matty, it's ruble and south african dollar together are going to overthrow the u.s dollar hegemony i'm telling you i'm putting all my money <laughs> yeah. in we we uh, we need to leverage Maddie's economics experience a little too here. You know he's a uh, source expert for Kazakhstan in that region as, as well as um, as well as Joseph. But uh, I'm going to start leaning on you for some economics questions, Maddie. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. You know, Gurney, I said if I ever get a chance to host, I'm just going to get this guy some airtime, and I'm real glad I did because he's a he's a wealth of information. And uh, let me tell you, his his Russian skills are also uh, very come in handy. Uh, I I spent two years studying declension tables, and uh, it's, uh, Russian is not an easy language. So uh, we we appreciate uh, you reading all the far right wing Telegram accounts for us, Maddie. It's uh, uh, tough work, I'm sure. Uh, so we'll go to, uh, we got two hands, Maddie. We, we want to be respectful of your time. So if you ever have to uh, drop out, uh, let us know. Uh, Alex, uh, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, Russia, the way Russia is going is kind of interesting. Very interesting where it will end up. Just um, with regards to economics, you guys were just discussing. It's, it, it's really hard. It's like a closed society at this point. And uh, the, so here is an example. There is increased popularity of stealing spare parts from cars in Russia, like headlights, other spare parts, for now headlights mostly. And the reason is, you know, you can't get these headlights because they are stopped import, especially for some brands, uh, like it's very, uh, if the brand is rare and you need headlights, there is no way you can get it unless, you know, um, somebody steals it you know so so the price of the stolen part because there is no price of stolen parts is going up creating additional incentive to steal so you would see now a lot of uh, uh, car parts being stolen and this is kind of growing trend and as an example of how everything is kind of going to uh, it's hard to determine the direction but basically there was a, a hockey team member he was a goal in russian national hockey team and uh, in a few days 
actually, yeah, in a few days he was going to join NHL. So just before that, he was taken to military commissariat and was sent to an army as a like so so you can uh, you can see where this is all going you know the guy who was like was about to leave a country for uh, joining an NHL was forced uh, was kidnapped basically and and stolen by force uh, and sent by force to serve in an army um, it's uh, yeah they are tightening screws uh, and uh, we'll have to see where where it's going but uh, it's very hard from outside to kind of give an estimate of where this is all going but definitely you know having your car parked downstairs seeing you know without headlights next morning that's not a very pleasant uh, not a very pleasant view anyway uh, just my two cents it's, it's very hard to put a dollar number for what's going on but there was actually an, a survey where uh, only about 20% of population are kind of more or less financially stable. And uh, most of them work either in um, IT or in um, mining. Like, and by mining, uh, that must be most likely either metals mining or, well, Russia has uh, quite some mining. But uh, both are under, like, IT because of sanctions will, uh, will collapse. I think there will be a lot of people leaving the country. And pretty much the same with mining, you know, because if you cut them, cut ability to export, um, that there is no, there will be very grim outcome for them as well. So we'll, we'll see how it will go. But all other 80%, uh, they are far from being assured of their financial future. Thank you, Alex. I guess uh, sometimes I try to phrase some of Alex's, uh, uh, you know, discussions in the form of a question. Like, um, you know, I think he was trying to, or he, he was making a point, I should say, like about uh, sort of the Russian military absorbing the the, 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 the talent, the, the young talent of the country. Um, do you see that sort of reflected in the economy yet, Maddie, or is it maybe too soon to tell? I would. It's kind of hard to tell. I I know the uh, hockey draft, uh, the NHL draft uh, that Alex mentioned. <laughs> Ivan Fedotov, right? Uh, that's the guy. Um, yes. Yeah. So the, I, I'm a bit of a hockey fan, so that I was I was a bit surprised to see that happen as well. But yeah, Alex is absolutely right. I t- that's why I didn't attach any numbers. I just gave you a few numbers coming from Rostad with a huge disclaimer. Because those numbers are the lowest possible estimate of what is actually happening in Russia. Because I suspect the things are, are a lot worse than what the Russians are reporting themselves. Um, because the official inflation rate, for example, is 17%. But if you look some, through some of the regional newspapers in the Russian Federation, you'll see that uh, many regions are kind of suffering much higher inflation. Uh, one of the ways they gauge it is they look through the borscht kit. Uh, basically, everything that goes into making the borscht soup. And 